A reading from Genesis. The child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for it is through Isaac that offspring will be named for you. As for the son of the slave woman, I shall make a nation of him also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, do not let me look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Jesus said to the twelve apostles, A disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher, and the slave like the master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? 
yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise. So a couple of years ago, I was walking out of the bookstore and spotted Marie Kondo's book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. I'd never heard of it before, but I'm always on a quest to get more organized so I don't have stuff getting in my way and disturbing my peace of mind. I didn't even know it was a bestseller, but it spoke to me. It must have sparked joy as I took it to the cashier and then home. And I was so intrigued by it that I immediately started going through my drawers and throwing things out and folding and organizing drawers just like she said to do. And when I was done with mine, I started in with my husband's. So imagine his surprise when he came home and saw all his things spread out and getting folded all funny. You know, see if anything sparks joy, I said. But much to my surprise, he kind of got into it. And we had a field day, throwing stuff out, marveling at all the extra space, which he vowed not to fill up again. So when the time came to close out the house we had lived in for over 30 years and moved to San Rafael, I was certain that we had pared down to the bare minimum and that moving was going to be a piece of cake. So the movers came and boxed everything up. And the next day, the van arrived. And we put the animals in the car and headed north. And we arrived in our new, empty house. And soon the movers started bringing things in. This goes here, I'd say. Put this over there, because I had it all planned out. But the boxes kept coming and coming. And as darkness fell and they were still hauling in huge pieces of furniture, I couldn't help asking, what is this? <laughs> Where did this come from? And I've got to tell you, you know, none of it was sparking that much joy. First world problems, I know. But it made me realize just how much I can't give things up. Even when the evidence is right there in front of me that I have way more than I when is it enough? Today's readings make us confront that question. How much is enough? And how much am I willing to give up in order to follow Jesus? Sue Monk Kidd in The Secret Life of Bees says, the hardest thing on earth is to choose what matters. 
And this is what we are called to grapple with today. What matters? We see the story in Genesis of Sarah, our matriarch, being so unspeakably cruel to Hagar and Ishmael. And Abraham, our revered ancestor, being such a weaselly jerk and going along with him. It wasn't enough for Sarah to have been granted a son in her old age. No, miracles weren't enough for her. She was petty enough and selfish enough that she couldn't allow Hagar to have some measure of happiness even though she was a slave. She couldn't have Ishmael competing with her own Isaac for Abraham's affections. There just wasn't enough love to go around. So she sent Hagar and Ishmael off to their deaths, or so she thought. The mercy of God, the abundance of God, was enough. The Gospel today tells us that we have to be willing to give up even our own attachments to family and tribe if we're going to follow Jesus. And these attachments can look very different to us than they would have looked in the world of Sarah and Hagar. And yet, I remember a time when I was working in San Mateo when a co-worker told of going to court to support a friend who had been poisoned by his wife many years before and was now suffering from terrible neurological disability because of the poisoning. And the wife had fled the country, but years later she had been found and extradited and she was now facing trial. So my co-worker had told me how the woman's family had been staring daggers at her friend's family and were quite hostile. And I expressed surprise that they would do that since her friend had been so irreparably harmed by her actions. But my coworker said, oh, come on, Margaret. Well, of course they would. They're family. And yet, how often do we stand by and support heinous actions by not only our own family, but by our own country, our own tribe, our own social class? and minimize the harm done to others. These impulses are alive and well in our own society and in our own hearts. And often, we don't even see them because it just seems like the way things are and have always been. Jesus is confronting the status quo. And he's laying it out for them that following him is not going to be easy. That if they were expecting to be comfortable, they're following the wrong guy. In Jesus' time, following him meant a lot of risk. It meant the possibility of being thrown out of your family. And in ancient times, without family support, it could mean the end of you. We don't have that same kind of urgency in our modern society to cleave to our families for that kind of safety. And even worse for them, they would be thrown out of their synagogues or their temple and be left without any societal support that could keep them alive. It's hard to imagine what that might have been like. They could even be put to death and were for aligning themselves with this revolutionary man. In some societies, this is still happening, and we're horrified by it. But then came Constantine in the fourth century, and Christians could finally breathe a sigh of relief. Soon they 
were the people in power. And soon, they were inflicting atrocities on the unbelievers. On the one hand, we can say, yay, Constantine, he finally recognized the truth of Jesus and quit persecuting Christians. But on the other hand, it began the long, dark journey of domesticating the gospel. The church became the powerful. And today we often confuse good citizenship with following Jesus. We're to be nice and not cause any trouble. We have become a pallid version of what Jesus called his followers to do. Perhaps the challenge to us today as 21st century Christians is to reignite the fire that led the early Christians into the world, challenging the status quo, even if it meant their death. We have so many impediments to that vision. We are part of the most powerful and prosperous country that has ever been. We could say that we are blessed, but I would be careful before I said that. Because the corollary of that is that those who don't have our power or prosperity are not blessed. And that is not what Jesus taught. We are blessed by the word of God that calls us into communion with the least powerful and the least prosperous. God is consistently on the side of the weak and the dispossessed. So if we are to be the church of God, we need to be on their side too. We worry about our little church and the numbers of people leaving our pews. And we worry about paying the bills. We worry about our membership and our graying community. Or as a friend of mine calls us, the Q-tips, the ones with white hair. I love it. But I submit to you that that should not be our worry. Our worry should be, are we following Jesus? Nancy Piercy says that in every historical period, the religious groups that grow most rapidly are those that set believers at odds with the surrounding culture. Now, the flip side of that is a quote from John Shelby Spong, the Episcopal bishop, who says, no church that forces engagement with new thinking will ever appeal to the masses. No church committed to social justice will ever be a majority denomination. Now, I'm not sure I agree with that, but I think the point is to not worry about being big and powerful. Worry about whether or not we are challenging the surrounding culture to follow Jesus. I know that some people think my sermon shouldn't be political. But let me be very clear that political is not the same thing as partisan. If we are not political, then I submit to you that we are domesticating the gospel and we're not following Jesus. If we are following Jesus, we are not allowed to let people go without health care because they can't afford it. If we are following Jesus, we are not allowed to continue to pump carbon dioxide into our atmosphere and make our planet uninhabitable. If we are following Jesus, we are not allowed to treat people differently just because of their race, ethnicity, religion, or country of origin. If we are following Jesus, we are not allowed to divert our eyes 
from the scourge of homelessness that we see every day on our streets and say, there but for the grace of God go I. Let's just retire that one from our vocabulary, shall we? Instead, let's replace it with there but for my indifference and failure to follow Jesus goes he or she. I don't have all the answers, or any, if truth be told. I come here, as do you, to hold myself and my fellow Christians accountable to following in the way of Jesus. To be reminded that, like Jesus, I have to look at the unjust systems, the principalities and powers of which I am a part and from which I benefit at the expense of those whom Jesus loves. This week, I ran across a quote from Donald Miller in Blue Like Jazz, Non-Religious Thoughts on Christian Spirituality in the 21st Century. And he says, the trouble with deep belief is that it costs something. And there is something inside me, some deep beast of a subtle thing that doesn't like the truth at all because it carries responsibility. And if I actually believe these things, I have to do something about them. It is so, so cumbersome to believe anything. And it isn't cool. Let us travel this journey together, this journey to find what in this life really matters, and to shoulder our responsibility as we follow Jesus. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing community welcoming those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You may reach us by phone at 415-388-1907, search for us online, or visit our website at OurSaviorMillValley.org. We wish you God's peace. We hope to greet you in person very soon.